Good morning, everyone. Uh, we are in the book of Judges, chapter 19. Now, I have, in the time that I have been a Christian, I don't think I have heard one sermon on the book of Judges, chapter 19, 20, or 21. It is uh, brand new, from my experience, preaching through it, but also I've never heard a sermon on it. And I think that's going to become very apparent as we get into this text why you probably also have never heard a sermon from the book of Judges, chapter 19, 20, or 21. I think we've all had the question posed to us at some point in time, do you want the good news or the bad news first? I always choose, what do you think I choose? I, yes, I always choose the bad news. Why? Because I know at the end, I'll at least get pepped up a little bit. Um, so I'm going to do the very same thing for you today. I'm going to give you the bad news first. And then at the end of the message, we're going to get to the good news. And as we're going through this, you're probably going to wonder, Tim, where in the world can you find good news in this message of chapter 19, which gets worse in chapter 20, which gets worse in chapter 21? How is there any silver lining in a message like this? And I firmly believe there is an amazing silver lining for us to apply today. This very morning, chapter 19 of Judges is applicable to us. I also find that this section of Judges probably to be one of the most ugly, depressing, vile stories maybe in all of Scripture. It may be one of the most difficult to understand. Maybe not understand, but it's mind-boggling how Israel got to this point. And Israel got to this point in Judges chapter 19, 20, and 21 because the godly people who were living in Israel, where there were godly people, they remained silent when the rest of Israel was going down a path of seeking their own pleasures, of calling evil good and good evil. And those that were faithful to God remained silent until it got to a boiling point. And when you wait until things get to a boiling point, war breaks out. And that's what we're going to see happening in chapter 20 and 21. The events of apathy and not caring about how society is going eventually leads Israel into a hundred-year civil war. And if you know anything about the book of Judges, you've already seen they've been at war constantly since they've entered into this land 350 years ago. Constantly at war, constantly with these bickering tribes, constantly with all these tribes from the outside trying to gain a foothold and drive Israel out of the promised land. And Israel always had to stand up to these bullies and God would raise up a judge, be delivered, and then they forgot God and went back into the habits of doing what was right in their own eyes because they had no king. They had no leader. And when that happens, culture and society eventually spirals out of control, and what was normal, good, and pleasant is turned on its head. Every part of chapter 19 should disgust you. Every part of chapter 19 should make you go, how? Does society get to that point? Every part of chapter 19 should make you go, why would God's people tolerate this? 
It is all abnormal. And we talked about it at the very beginning of the series in the book of Judges that we would often come upon stories and there would be no moral dialogue. The author's not going to tell us what's right or wrong. That's for God to communicate to us what is right or wrong. They're just simply recording the events. And it is unnerving, to say the least. But there is a good story at the end of it. So chapter 19 records for us the events that led to this civil war finally reaching a boiling point. Chapter 20 talks about the war itself, and then chapter 21 talks about the consequences of the war. And there is no way we can get through all three chapters in one sitting. So we're going to look at chapter 19, and we're going to start by reading verses 1 through 15, kind of all the way through, so you get a mindset of how depraved the nation of Israel, God's people, have become and how they have tolerated for themselves sin in their own camp. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 19 of Judges, we're talking about a Levite, a wife, and a servant enter a city. Now you might think that's the opening of a good joke, but there's no joke here. In those days, that is the days of the Judges, so during that 450-year period, in those days there was no king in Israel. Well, they said that several times already in the book of Judges. There's no leadership. There's no structure. There's no one to call people to right action and right thinking. They're just all doing what's right in their own eyes. But during the days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. Now, a Levite should give you a clue that this is a person who's of the tribe of Levi, and this person is called very specifically to be a spiritual leader in Israel. They are the ones who made up the priests and the high priests and everyone that took care of the temple were from the Levite tribe. Now, the Levites were not given any land, no possession, because their call was to serve God in the house of God. And everyone else in Israel, the other 11 tribes, uh, 11 and a half tribes, would take care of the needs of the Levites. So they didn't have their own land to farm and to ranch. They were dependent upon the gifts of others. So this guy is traveling in the hill country of Ephraim, which from our perspective would be a little bit north and to the west, exactly where Micah was in the last two chapters of the book of Judges. So he's sojourning there, and we're told that he took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Oh, wow. You can already see where this is starting, and we're just in verse 1 takes for himself a concubine. And number, verse 2, and this concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and there was there for four months. So immediately he gets married, his wife becomes unfaithful, and his wife then goes back to her, his, her father's house. So leaves him. She's gone for four months. Then her husband arose and went after her. I would be thinking at this point, if he really loved her and was devoted to this relationship with her, why did he wait four months? Would you have waited four months and then gone, you know what, maybe I should probably do something. I had a wife, and I know life is busy, but within four months, I probably should have seen her. But he's clueless. Remember, things are upturned on their heads. It's not normal living that's taking place in Israel. So four months go by. He decides, maybe I should go find my wife. And so, verse 3, uh, he went to speak kindly to her and bring her back. And he was with his servant and a couple donkeys. 
And she brought him to her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. Probably the first time that the father of this wife had ever met him. They're happy. He brings a servant, has donkeys, which means he has wealth and provisions with him. And so the father-in-law in in verse 4, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, he arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. Uh, Basically meaning, hey, let's drink some more, because it's only been four days that we've been eating and drinking. Why not make it a fifth? And when the man arose to go, the father-in-law pressed him, and he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they both ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant arose to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, behold, now the day is waned towards evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. So right in those first few verses, we see a scenario of a lot of eating and a lot of drinking. And for whatever reason, the father-in-law doesn't want his new son-in-law to leave. Now, we're not told why, but he's making up every excuse in the book. You know what? It's early in the day. You better get something to eat and drink because you've got a long journey ahead. And by the time they're done eating and drinking, the father-in-law goes, oh, the day is spent. It's too late. You'll never find a place to stay. So why don't you just stay the night? Let's eat and drink. And you get going in the morning. That happens five days. Now, it is good to be hospitable. It is nice to offer someone something to eat and drink when they're at your home visiting, but you don't need to put them up for five days. I don't know what really is going behind the scenes, but wow, there's a lot of eating, drinking, and making your heart merry. That is Scripture's polite way of saying they were partying really hard to the point where getting up in the morning was difficult and leaving was difficult. And this Levite obviously wasn't all that concerned about the eating and drinking, having a merry heart and partying, because he ends up going along with it. Even though he wants to get going every day, he gets convinced by his father-in-law, stay. So I don't know if he's trying to be just a a good host, and the Levite is trying to be a good uh, son-in-law, but this has been going on for five days. He's trying to journey to go back home, but he can't. Verse 10. But the man would not spend the night. So he rose up and departed and arrived at Jebus, that is Jerusalem. Jebus is the name of Jerusalem before the Israelites took over Jerusalem. At the time, it was run by Canaanites. And remember, if we're looking at Calvary being Jerusalem and the rest of Pueblo being the nation of Israel, we are right here. So right here in town. That's where he passed. And he had a couple of saddle donkeys with his concubine with him. I guess I should have said this really right at the very beginning. The word concubine does not mean prostitute. Okay? The word concubine is the most common word in Hebrew to refer to a wife or a woman. That's all it means. And so translators just translate that word to wife or to concubine, usually based on the context. 
And we can see the context in the first few verses. They get married, and her immediate response is to be unfaithful. So she is not living up to the standard of being a godly wife, mother, part of the family. She is indeed being unfaithful. But the word concubine itself does not hold any negative connotations in Scripture. It just simply means wife or woman. And it's the most common word ever used in Scripture for a wife or woman, just translated differently. But the context is showing us that she's definitely unfaithful. Verse 11, so they set out on the fifth day. The Levite doesn't want anything else to do with this. He leaves on the fifth day. So they rise up and they start traveling. And while they were near Jebus, that is Jerusalem, the city of peace, verse 11, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, go online and find a hotel for us right away on Priceline. See if you can get us the best deal. No, there was no Priceline. There was no find out what hotel is open. They did none of this. There was none of that. It was you drove into a city and you hoped, you hoped someone would take kind to a stranger and bring you in to give you food and shelter. Why did you hope someone would bring you in to give you food and shelter? Because if you spent the night outside, who knows what would happen to you? When you spent the night outside, outside of protection of a house or a city gate, you were basically inviting robbers and thieves to totally take advantage of you. So they get into the city late at night, that is, uh, near Jerusalem, and the servant tells his master, come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites that we may spend the night in it. Now the Jebusites were just uh, another subsect of the Canaanites, they were not God-fearing people. They were idolaters. They were uh, into children's sacrifice. The worst of the worst, just like all the other Canaanites were. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of the foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibba. Now that, Gibba would be just a little bit north and west of us, sort of where um, City Park is in relationship to Jerusalem. So it's still a hike, but they wanted to make that hike in order to get to a city that had Israelites as part of the inhabitants. I mean, the last thing a Jewish priest would want to do that had donkeys and wealth would go into a foreign city and depend upon hospitality to take care of it because who knows what would happen to them in a foreign city. So they wanted to go to a safe city where there was the tribe of Benjamin regular Israelites. And so he said to the young man, verse 13, come let us draw near to one of those places and spend the night at Giba or Ramah. And they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Giba, which also belongs to Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Giba. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Here we have a man who is traveling with a servant, several donkeys, and his wife. An Israelite, a priest to the Israelites, one who was supposed to be a spiritual leader, walks into a town asking for help, and no one takes care of him. He just sits in the middle of the city square where guests would sit until someone brought him in, and no one brought them into their house. Now, it was super common, and it's super common in a lot of cultures 
When there is someone who is traveling, someone in need, you help them as far as it is possible with you. I have done the same thing. I have stopped along the side of the road, and you know I am no value if you are stopped on the side of the road, but I will still stop and encourage you and help you the best I can, even though I don't know how to change a tire, I don't know how to check the water in a radio, I don't know any of that stuff, but I still want to help. And maybe you've seen that same situation that you've been in, where you see someone in need, and your first desire is to help, even though you may not know exactly how to do it. You at least have the willingness to step up and help. These people needed someone to be willing and step up and just say, hey, spend the night in my house, it's protected. We'll give you some food, a place for you to rest. No problem. We'll take care of you. Especially your own people. Someone that speaks your own language, that has your own heritage, that looks just like you. You are very willing to step out of your comfort zone and help them. They pass by cities to get to a place where they are culturally and socially accepted by their own people. Could you try again? No. I can't. I don't, don't know what that was. Go away. No. I'm not sure I no. understand. I didn't say the magic word, you know, S-I-R-I. -I. I don't know. Oh. Okay. You're not speaking my language right now. So they go into a place. No one takes them in. You can almost see the writing on the wall at this point. Verse 16 through 21. And behold, an old man was coming in from his work in the field in the evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, so further north and west, and he sojourned to Gibeah. And the men of the place were Benjamites. So we know the city was inhabited by Israelites, God's people. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, we're just passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which we come, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys and bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. So the Levite says, hey, I've got everything covered. I'm not looking for a handout or charity. I just would like a safe place to stay the night. That's all I need. I'm not looking for anything. I'm not going to, you know, mooch off you or anything. I've got everything I need. And so the old man says in verse 20, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. If the chapter ended there, we probably would think that this is just a normal chapter of Scripture with no big... Uh, ups or downs, no big revelation on how we are to live our lives, no big challenge, and you would go, Tim, what's the big deal? At the beginning of the message, you said that this might be one of the most terrifying portions of Scripture to read, knowing what was going on in Israel. What in the world could possibly happen to strangers who have been invited into a house, having their needs taken care of, 
and seeking protection. We are in the book of Judges, chapter 19. There is another chapter 19 in the book of Genesis that mirrors this almost exactly. Let's continue. Verse 22 through 26. As they were making their hearts merry, eating and drinking, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Have you ever heard of five verses that completely changed the atmosphere of a room? Two minutes ago, we just had a little chuckle and laugh at something Oh, it's still messed up. Something happening. Kind of light. Kind of waiting for the shoe to drop. And all of a sudden we read this. It's not the Canaanites doing this. It's not the Egyptians doing this. It's not some foreign invaders doing this. It's not the Babylonians or the Amorites or the Hittites or the, all the otherites. It are Israelites of the tribe of Benjamin. It is God's people crying out to the man of this, old, this, this older man in this house, bring us the man, bring us the man. You don't need any word pictures to figure out what's going on here. You know exactly what's going on here, and yes, that is exactly what's going on here. Exactly what they did in Genesis 19 when Lot had the two visitors come, the two angels that were going to bring judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. Same scenario. Although this time, how twisted and upended the story is when the old man says, take my virgin daughter and my guest concubine, his wife. Take them. No, send us the man. And the man takes his own wife 
and throws them to the unruly crowd. And they violate her all night long until she has no more energy at the end of the night, falls down before the house. This is so twisted, so not what I'm expecting from a Sunday morning sermon, so wrong on every turn. Every verse feels like it's reaching this crescendo of how could it get any worse? How could it get any worse? Oh, it does. It gets worse than this. Verse 27 through the end of the chapter, you thought it couldn't get worse. And the master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house, he went out to go on his way, and behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of his house with her hands on the threshold. (laughs) He said to her, I don't know how he said this, but I imagine it was with a little bit of disgust that it's taking so long. Get up. Let's be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went on his way home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces. It gets worse. And he sent her throughout all the territories of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day of the people of Israel that came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Finally, people woke up to the situation that was happening in Israel, which meant there was no king and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Finally, it took the murder, rape, slaughter, and division of a woman to be sent throughout Israel as a spectacle for God's people finally to say, no more, not in my house. Not those people that call God my God. Not the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jehu. Not in my land. But what did it take for the people of Israel to get to that realization that something had to change? It took chapter 19, verses 1 through 26, to get to that point. If you're not disgusted at everyone in this story, except for the old man who invited the family in, but then terrible suggestion on his part what to do with the women. Besides his hospitality, there's not a part of this story that's admirable. I guarantee you there's probably no one in the world with any of these verses tattooed on them. I don't know what verse in here you could possibly imagine would be an awesome tattoo. There might be, but I don't find it. No one's walking around with a t-shirt with these verses written on it. As hard as I tried, I could not find a song written about this. That would have been great to close a service with, right? Verse 27, 28, 29, I mean, no. And it's not because we reject it that it's Scripture. 
that it's God's truth, that it really happened. But the events of it are so vile, even in our day, that we don't want to deal with it. I understand that. I understand that there's a lot of things in this world that we don't want to deal with. There are a lot of things that happen in this nation we don't want to deal with. It's not that we ignore it, it just is disgusting to deal with. And I'm not just talking about the media, I'm not just talking about entertainment, I'm talking about in our own lives. It's hard for us to wrestle with and deal with those ugly things that pop up that are just as vile as this. And before your mind and your attention goes to judging the world, how bad they are, how wicked they are, how they have abused our education system and snuck in to take over. Before you start accusing the world of all these things, remind yourself that this was happening in God's country, God's real country, God's land, with God's people that he had given promises to. The tribe of Benjamin had gone bonkers, living terrible lives and actions that are despicable back then and today. Despicable. And so before you start hurling stones of accusations against the world and all of its vile wickedness that it has brought into our own homes, into our minds, into our TVs and radio, before you start laying blame on them, I want you to remember the story in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus explained very clearly and very vividly, before you try taking the speck out of someone else's eye, what are we supposed to do? Take the log out of our own. You see, true revival, true advancement in the influence of the gospel in the world always starts in the household of God. It always starts with God's people saying, is there some wicked way within my heart that needs to change? Is there something inside of me that needs to change? Yes, I want the world to change, but we start with ourselves. What must I change about myself so that I don't tolerate this, so that I don't become this, so that the church doesn't become a haven for this? How do I change? I am overwhelmed with this text and this story. How can God's people get to this point that it took the death and physical division of a woman to bring awareness and outrage? What are we supposed to do in light of this? Where's that silver lining, Tim? Because so far, this looks like a thunderstorm of black clouds. Because I know exactly what we can do. And it's not raising protests. It's not making Facebook posts. It's not Twitter or Instagram. It is us here now today. We can do exactly what God calls his people to do. To repent. Of our own sin first. Before we start hurling stones at others, repent of our own sin first. In the book of Psalms, well, the book of Psalms is amazing everywhere through it, but in chapter 66, the whole of the chapter is amazing, 
But towards the end of the chapter, I think God gives us exactly what we need today. He says, I cried out to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. See, the psalmist says, if I hid sin, if I ignored sin, if I allowed sin to remain inside of me, then my praises to God, my prayers to God would be unheard. But it is a good, blessed thing, my brothers and sisters in Christ, to confess your sin, to tell God what is wrong in your heart and to ask Him to reveal more. And it is painful. It hurts to admit that you are hiding something that you are secretly desiring something that you know God has said don't desire. And to cry out before the Lord and say, Lord, search me and know me. Psalm 139 talks about that several times. Search me and know me. Reveal to me my heart that I might be able to confess my sins, that I might be right with you. I don't want this to be an exercise uh, Remember, as we looked at Micah the last two weeks, we saw that superstitions are irrelevant to the Christian's life. Whether you do the sign of the cross, whether you pray a rosary, whether you bow, none of that matters. None of it does. So superstitions and actions are not what I'm talking about next. But I would ask you that if you feel led by God, not by others, but by God himself, to confess your sins, to make a clean slate today, because tomorrow we're going to need to make another clean slate. I know that. But to make a clean slate here and now, I would ask you that after you come up with communion, if you are physically possible, and it may not be for everybody, I understand that, so don't feel pressured or feel bad, but I would encourage you to take a moment and kneel on these steps, not as a sign to everyone that you are kneeling, but as a sign of your own repentant heart before God, Lord, reveal if there is something wicked inside of me, and if there is, convict me of that, and then forgive me of that. And you can go to the bank with a guarantee that God will forgive you. He's proven it right here on this table that he will forgive any sin. Nothing can be too far from him to forgive. Nothing can be too gross, too vile. These Benjamites could have at that moment repented and confessed their sins and God would have forgiven them. What? Yes, God can forgive that. You mean the rape and murderer of someone? Yes, God can forgive that. Are there consequences? Yes, but God can forgive it. You will not surprise God with anything. You might surprise us, but you're not going to surprise God. You don't have to confess it to us. You just confess it to God. But you will not surprise him with what you're struggling with, what you're angry about, what you've done, or what you want to do. But if you want change in our culture, if you want change at work or in schools, or in our media, or in our world. It doesn't start with protests and riots. It starts with you bowing a knee, physically or symbolically,
before God and confessing your sins. And as he tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. So as our band walks up and our elders come up to help hand out uh, the Lord's Supper, you are welcome to follow my lead or you don't have to. The physical sign of bowing and kneeling is not a sign of repentance. But sometimes for me, it helps me to do that physical thing to get my heart and my mind connected. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for... Can I say it, Father? We thank you for Judges chapter 19. As vile as the actions were in that chapter, thank you for leading us to a moment of repentance. And I pray, Father, that we would all call upon your name, that we would all seek the cross to forgive us our sins. And we know, Father, that you are faithful to forgive each and every sin. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness you've given us through Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen.